And so I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 13. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, if you don't have one, uh, don't own a Bible, we put black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. And uh, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, that's our gift to you. Please, please take that with you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, we're going to start in Revelation 13 in just a moment. Uh, before we do, I wanted to read you just a brief text message from Brian Lamb and the students who are at Rise. Um, their retreat is wrapping up right now, and I think they'll be back for second service. Um, if you've been watching on Facebook, a huge group of students went. A lot of them, Brian uh, says, are first-timers, like haven't even been part of our church, just came to be a part of this retreat, and God's moving in a big way there um, this weekend. And so he just said uh, they had a bunch of first-time kids that really plugged in and got connected. Um, the worship sessions were super loud and singing, and the students were very engaged during the sermons. In every small group, uh, they do small groups after their sermons, went way past the time that they had allowed. They just kept on going. That's when you know God is working, when you just can't keep it on schedule. Um, but ultimately, um, he said that the students, the adults also were having an awesome time and want to appreciate all you guys for your prayers. And, and a lot of you um, helped financially to get students there. So um, God's working there and he's working here and, uh, and excited to see what happens um, when students get back. So there's a brief word from Brian Lamb. All right, we're going to get started uh, in just a moment. So let me help you out. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're in a sermon series going through Revelation. And, uh, and so we've been, we've been tracking along fairly well. We've stopped over the last couple of weeks to deal with what appear to be literary breaks, like a break in the unfolding of the events to stop and focus on a few things. And so um, there are three of these literary breaks in Revelation. Chapter 7 was one. We spent a whole week looking at it. Uh, and then you get to chapter 11 is one. And now what we're going to see is we're, we started last week looking at this third one. Uh, and we're going to spend a couple weeks here. This is where we get the introduction of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. The ultimate false trinity uh, getting ready to wage war against God. And so today we're looking at uh, the Antichrist in Revelation 13. Now, one of the difficulties with uh, reading uh, an English version of the Bible is that it was not written in English originally, and so it didn't have verses, chapters, punctuation. Uh, the Greek language, which is the language that this was originally written in, was a, is a very intricate language. You don't need punctuation to tell where sentences stop or where the difference between a statement or a question. You can tell because it's such an intricate language. However, sometimes it poses difficulties on where to put the, the, the breaks, uh, between thoughts. And so some of your translations, uh, chapter 12 actually goes all the way through verse 18. There's this phrase on the end about, about he's standing on the sand of the seashore. However, some translations will take that phrase and put it at the beginning of 13. I just want to share that with you. Um, and, and that way we don't get tripped up over it as we start. So I'm starting uh, with verse uh, 13, 1 in just a minute. And I saw the beast rising from the sea. And so some of your translations, if you're in the NIV, NASB, or the New King James, will actually start with, uh, he was, John was standing on the sand, and then he saw the rising. So it's same phrase, it's just whether or not it goes with 12 or 13, there's dispute and debate. So there you go. There's your free theological literary discussion, free of charge. Here's what is happening that matters. In chapter 12, the first section of this literary break, we were introduced to the dragon, 
representing Satan, right? The Old Testament presents Satan as a serpent, as a dragon, as a Leviathan. And so in chapter 12, we're introduced to uh, this, this false representation of God in Satan as a dragon. He has a tail and he swipes a third of, of, his, of the angels from heaven when he's cast down. And there's this war waged against the woman who in chapter 12 re- represents uh, in a very specific way Mary and Jesus, but in a broader sense the nation of Israel giving birth to the Messiah. And he wages war against the woman and against her offspring, Jesus, and against his future followers. And so that war now from, from Revelation 12 is going to begin playing out, and now the Antichrist is going to be on the scene carrying out that war against God's people and the inhabitants of earth. And so in Revelation 12, 17 from last week, just one verse here kind of setting up this picture. The dragon became furious with the woman, this is the end of chapter 12, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So, so that war now is going to be played out by both the Antichrist and the false prophet in chapter 13 and 14. And so today we're going to look at 13, uh, 1 through 10, the false prophet, starting in verse 1 now. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns. Diadems are crowns, so ten crowns on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority, one of his Heads, one of its heads seemed to have a, a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So now we have this beast rising out of the sea, kind of head first. It, it seems like John is like here on the seashore watching this happen. This beast emerges from the sea, head first horns, crowns on the horns coming up, and then he begins to see the body torso of this beast as it makes its way all the way up to full view. Now, this is very similar to the dragon. The dragon had seven heads and ten horns. The difference so far is that the actual dragon had seven crowns. Now the crowns are on the ten horns. So there's a, there's a similarity, a very, very close similarity with the dragon. This beast we're seeing looks a lot like the dragon, yet there's distinction because the crowns are now on the ten horns. Let's just talk about some of the imagery for just a minute. Uh, this imagery most likely comes from Daniel 7. If you go read Daniel 7, um, you see there's, there's this emergence of four beasts. And the third, so you've got four beasts. The third beast actually has four heads. So if you bring all these four beasts together, which are similar to what just got described, you've got a beast with seven heads. And then the fourth beast has ten horns, very similar to what we're reading here. And then there is a smaller horn in Daniel 7 that ultimately represents the Antichrist. So all this imagery is coming together. Now, this is a fantastic example of how easy it is to get tripped up over the details, trying to figure out the symbolism in every single piece of it and missing the big picture and the ultimate message God is conveying through this. By, by, my, by no mistake, I think he wants us to, to think of Daniel 7 and, and even on into Daniel 11 because there's a lot of information about this one that would come, this antichrist who would come up and make war and rule kings and kingdoms. And so this imagery now is playing out with what is going to seem to be the antichrist here in Revelation 13. So 
let's talk for a minute about why we say antichrist. So with last week, the seven crowns, we know seven represents ultimately God. This is God's number. It's the number of wholeness, completion, perfection, holiness. That is God. So the dragon had seven crowns, this false image of God. Now this particular beast, this that's rising up that we will look at as the Antichrist, has ten crowns. So again, false royalty, but the crowns are on the horns, not the heads. But the, probably the most distinguishing characteristic of this particular beast is verse 3. On one of its heads, it seemed to have a mortal wound. A mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And if you're reading from the New American Standard uh, Version, it says it this way, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. That's another way to translate it. And his fatal wound was healed. You, you begin to see the imagery, right? A false image of Christ here. That there'll be something about the Antichrist marking him as a false representation of Christ. And through this mortal wound, right, Jesus all throughout Revelation is the lamb who was slain. We're still seeing him that way in heaven. The true Christ, the one who, who bears a true mortal wound and overcame that mortal wound through the resurrection. Now we have the Antichrist posing now as Jesus and impressing the people on earth with whatever this miracle is, some speculation on what it actually could be, but the point is this, that through whatever this mortal wound the Antichrist has and then recovers from or overcomes, the people, the whole earth, marveled as they followed. And so that would be the result. So Daniel 7 and now uh, Revelation 13 are, are portraying the image of a leader who will rise up and one of the characteristics of this leader will be some type of a mortal wound, some type of a, an ailment or a wound that, that he will have to overcome in such a way that when people see it, they'll marvel at it like they did with Jesus overcoming the resurrection and begin to follow. So now we have this anti-Christ, a false Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to read several verses here where the Apostle Paul describes this one who will come, this lawless one or this Antichrist. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're talking about his return, and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, do or not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul is saying, hey, be, be aware. Don't be overtaken or, or over-alarmed when you get a, a letter or something that seems like it comes from God or comes from us. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. Well, why not, Paul? Well, he goes on to say, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So what we're reading about in Revelation 12 and 13 and 14 is going to be the brewing of this rebellion that must come first, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica saying, hey, there's going to be a rebellion that takes place under the leadership of one who, who projects himself as God. 
verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that, you, that he may be revealed in his time. So at the time Paul's writing this, he's saying, right now the lawless one is being restrained. Verse 7, for the mystery of, of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So even though the evidence of lawlessness is rampant on the earth, you're going to begin to see that. Even before the lawless one is revealed, you're going to begin to see the lawlessness on earth. And Paul says it's actually, as he's writing, it's actually already showing itself. All the way back in the first century. Verse 8 And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all the power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. And there's Paul describing probably 30 to 40 years before John's writing down Revelation, Paul is writing a letter without the symbolism, just saying, guys, here's what's going to happen. You're going to see there's a a lawlessness you're going to see around you, and that's the signs of the coming of the lawless one who right now is being restrained. And so now we're in an era of church history where there's some debate. Is Is the Antichrist, the lawless one, has he already been revealed? Who is he? And people are trying to figure out and ask, is it this leader? Is it this leader? Is it that leader? Is it, a, is it maybe symbolic of a group of leaders? Is it NATO? Is it, is it, you know, the, is it Putin? Who, who is this? And so I'm not going to be so bold as to say, okay, it's this person. But here's what I would say. I would say if you look at the whole picture globally and you look at Christianity as a whole, especially here in North America, I believe we're on the threshold of an anti-Christian movement. Now, I'm not saying the Antichrist has been revealed, especially around this time of year, you begin to see an anti-Christian movement. And now it's happening all throughout the year. You know, it started as no prayer in schools and, and then debates about nativity scenes. And so, and I'm not talking about Starbucks and a red cup, okay? There's a difference between an entity saying, hey, we're just going to choose to not promote something. It's okay, that's right? It's free market. They can do what they want. But it's a totally different thing when Christians are being told that they can't worship and can't celebrate. And that's the movement that I think we're beginning to see is a somewhat anti-Christian movement. No longer are the media outlets trying to hide this idea. I mean, it was just this past week where the prayers of Christians praying through Twitter, expressing their prayers through Twitter about what happened um, San Bernardino, right, those, those prayers were being called, like, useless platitudes. Okay, that's a, that's a very distinct and clear anti-Christian statement. And so we can begin to see the lawlessness, right, the indications of a lawless one, though I, I wouldn't be so bold to say that he's appeared yet, but we can definitely see the signs, and we could go, go on for a while there. Now, The main point is that this Antichrist, through a false miracle of some sort, will gain the favor of the world. The whole earth marveled. That phrase, that whole earth, is used to describe Jesus' followers when he's in the Gospels moving throughout the towns and the the whole earth gathers. It's an expression for a big crowd. And so now here the Antichrist is creating that same kind of movement that Jesus created when we see him feeding the thousands and crowds gathering for his teacher. Now that's happening on a larger scale. 
as the lawless one is revealed. Of course, now we have technology and Twitter and social, you know, social media in different ways. So Jesus didn't have those tools. He's simply right, leading a grassroots movement, word-of-mouth movement. This particular description is that the whole earth gets on board. There's, a, there's an expression of this all around the globe following the lawless one. Now, verse 4. Verse 4. And they, the ones who followed the beast... They worship the dragon. Remember, the dragon was Satan himself. Now we have the Antichrist. And they, the followers of the beast, worship the dragon. Why? For he had given his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying. So they're worshiping the dragon. They're worshiping the beast. They're following the beast. They're seeing all this power revealed in the, in the beast and false miracles. And they're worshiping the dragon, too. The dragon gave the power to the beast. Look at this incredibly important statement. I would say that there's a, there's a pinnacle to the description of the Antichrist. It's right here. They worship the dragon for he given his authority to the beast. They worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now, on a surface level, those are pretty big statements. But I think it's important for us to understand how incredibly symbolic those statements are. See, those aren't actually questions. Those are statements. And one of the predominant characteristics and attributes of God, predominantly in the Old Testament, is expressed with these questions. Who is like our God? That's God's attribute. Let me just give you a few examples, and I weeded this list down. Exodus 15, way back in the Old Testament. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Psalm 71, 19, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You have done great things, O God, who is like you? Psalm 89, 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? And from the prophet Isaiah 46, verse 5, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? It's from God. Who, who in the world are you going to bring up and compare to me? From the prophet Micah 7.18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Micah saying there's, there's no other God like that. A God of steadfast love. And then one of, one of my favorite parts of Job, it sounds kind of strange to have a favorite part of Job, right? A story of suffering is, is in the end, the last few chapters, God has a very candid conversation with Job. And in chapter 38, God is speaking to Job because Job has seemingly finally gotten up the courage to question God. What's this all about? Why are you doing this to me? Now, those are my words, not his. But God responds. Have you ever had one of those moments? God, why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve this. You know, right? We have those moments, don't we? If I'm, if I'm Job, I'm having that moment the very, first, right, the very first chapter. But it's later on before Job begins to kind of express his honesty. Listen to this from God to Job. This is Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said... Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
God's speaking out of a whirlwind to Job. It's almost like Job's down here asking questions and God looks right over him on purpose. Who is this? Like, I can't even see you. You must be somewhere else. Like, who is this who darkens counsel with words but has no knowledge? Look at what he says in verse 3. Dress for action like a man. Job, you want to ask me some questions? Step up. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, verse 10, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and I love this one, and, and said, this is, who said this to the oceans as the oceans are bursting forth? I mean, you and I wade out into the oceans and a little wave knocks us over. This is, this is asking a question. Who said this? Thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Was that you, Job? Job? Where, where are you at, right? Who has that kind of power to say to the oceans, you're going to stop right here? Now, this, this beautiful description of this incomparable glory and power of God all throughout the Old Testament, right, now is being hijacked by Satan. And he is working through the Antichrist, the beast, so that now on earth, people are beginning to ask that question of the Antichrist, and they say, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Well, God's getting ready to answer that question throughout the rest of Revelation. He's going he's to answer the question, who can fight against the Antichrist? But there's going to be a time of rebellion on earth where followers are going to begin to ascribe that attribute to the lawless one, the Antichrist. Who is like him? Who could fight against him? you're taking notes with us today, Satan's strategy to fool us is to pretend to be God in order that we might worship him. It's, nothing, it's not new. It's not new. His strategy is, is to pretend to be God in order that we might worship him. Can I just tell you that strategy has been implemented since Genesis chapter 3. As soon as Satan, through the image of the serpent, said to Eve, did God really say that? And he begins to twist God's words. He's ultimately trying to take the place of God in the story. And he's restating what God said, twisted. And he's been doing that in your life as well. Attempting to fool you, to allure you, right? And to find joy in things that aren't God. He's already implementing that strategy on earth. And even as Christians at times, we're lured in and out of that and we get distracted for a moment on earthly things, things that maybe are good things, right? Like relationships and marriages and, and all kinds of great things that if we're not careful, become God to us and anything less than God is not God. 
And so Satan implements this strategy of pretending to be God in order that we might worship him, give him our affections, give him our attention. Verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth. So he had a mouth like a lion in the previous description. He was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. So there's this idea that it's not going to be any, any hidden agenda. This beast is going to be blasphemous towards God. Going on to say that this beast is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And we've dealt with these time frames already in the series. Whether it's a literal 42 months or symbolic 42 months, I'll let you make that decision. But the point is God is saying, I'm restricting this time of rebellion. I'm restricting it going to seem like things are out of control and like I'm not in my sovereign place over the universe, but that's not true. There's a time limit. There's a shelf life to the rebellion of the lawless one. So verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So it's not going to, even though there's this sense of deception, there's going to be a pronounced blasphemy against God, the one true God. That this Antichrist is going to have enough of a movement and a following that when he blasphemes God, people aren't going to think anything of it. As he makes a mockery out of the one true God and his followers, people are going to be deceived and, and, and agree with this lawless one and worship him. Now in Daniel 11 Remember, all this imagery comes from Daniel 7 through 11. There's this verse in 36. The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself. This is, again, in the Daniel imagery, it's the little horn, but it's the one who represents the lawless one or the Antichrist. And so this is the king. The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decree shall be done. This is all the way back in the Old Testament. This description of the lawless one will have a temporary movement here on earth, followers worshiping him. Verse 7. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over every tribe and people and language and nation. Now, two things. Let's talk about that last description. His authority of this lawlessness was given over every tribe and people, language and nation. You see how there's a false representation of God here? In chapter 5 of Revelation, this is the gathering of God's people. I think it's in chapter 7 as well. There are seven references like this in Revelation describing God's people gathering to worship the one true God. And now here the Antichrist is kind of hijacking that for a moment. That every tribe, language, and nation coming together. See how this is a world movement here. But what's described here is that the beast is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, We've got to define some things here because we've read through the letters in the churches that Jesus is inviting the churches to remain faithful and to be co-conquerors with him. And so what we're talking about, the conquering here, is just a physical conquering of this body, this life here on earth. It's this image of defeat. But we saw in chapter 7, the saints of God have actually been sealed 
Not our physical bodies, but our souls have been sealed. And so our souls can't be conquered, even if our bodies are. So from Revelation 11, we read this in verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. In, verse, in chapter 12, we saw this last week, verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So that's us, the saints of God, have conquered the enemy, for they love their lives even unto death. So even though our souls shall conquer and are sealed, there is the potential of suffering among God's people even unto death, physical death, under the reign of this lawless one. I love Daniel 7, going back to this Old Testament imagery of the lawless one. There's this beautiful promise about the suffering of God's people and this, this false idea that the, the people of God are being conquered. This is Daniel 7, verse 21. He says, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. This is the Antichrist in Daniel 7, verse 22. Until, I like that word. Right? 42 months in Revelation, here it says, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So this idea that the beast will conquer God's people, it's a short-lived, temporary conquering. Okay? We, we, we bear a symbolic expression of this in our everyday lives. Every time you walk through a moment of suffering or despair, it feels quite like you're being conquered, only to what? To walk through it, right? And to find that ultimately Jesus has been victorious. So this is, take that imagery then and apply it to the whole earth during this time. There'll be a sense that the whole earth feels this way, that despair of defeat of like, oh my gosh, maybe God changed his mind or where is God or maybe God's not real. And that's connected with all the blasphemy of God that's led out by the lawless one, the sense of momentary being conquered until the ancient of days says, all right, done. Month 42, done. Lawless one, you've had your time now, done. And the ancient of days has the final word. So here's something I think we need to realize as people here on earth, followers of Jesus, there is a, there is a certain suffering every person in this room shall walk through, and that is the suffering of death. Whether you go quietly in the night or you're a victim of some type of tragic, ongoing suffering, death itself is something we all have to walk through, right, by faith. Whether you know it's coming, maybe a terminal illness and you're in a hospital bed and a doctor says you have three days, or you don't know it's coming and it's tragic and it's quick and it's fast, that is a certain level of suffering that every person is going to have to walk through by faith into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some, though, will face that death and suffering solely based on their identity as Christians. These are martyrs. Every person has to walk through, through death, short of Jesus returning, you're still alive, right? Short of that happening, we'll, we'll walk through death. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says that I may, this is about Jesus, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by no means, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And Paul has already mentioned whether I live, whether I die, I don't care. It's all about Jesus. And so 
ultimately, whether you die as a martyr because you won't renounce your faith in Jesus and somebody takes your life, or you simply pass on this life into eternal life, walking through some type of ailment, um, old age, tragedy, whatever it is, right? You walk into death through this suffering to attain the power of the resurrection. And so there is a sense of every Christian, every Christ follower is walking through a moment of being conquered, momentary conquering. Even Jesus himself, he dies on the cross. There's three days where it looks like he had, in fact, been conquered. And so here, the lawless one, though, in a, in a much more cosmic sense, is issuing persecution against the followers of God. And for a brief moment, he's being allowed to conquer them. He's given authority. Verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now what's key here is this, the very first phrase, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Okay, Because I don't know if you caught it or not, just, just a few verses back, I think it's verse 6, those who dwell in heaven is a description of a certain group of people. So look at verse 6 with me. So the, 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 the beast opens his mouth like a lion. He utters blasphemy against God, blaspheming the name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. So he's on earth issuing persecution against people who are actually living on earth, but they're fi- they find their identity where? In heaven, not in the things on earth. So the identity of God's people is that they dwell, they live, their home, their residence, their identity is where? In eternity, not here on earth. And so now we see a group of people who are finding their identity where? On earth. They dwell. They live. Their existence is here on earth. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written. Now this idea of the the names being written in the book or the books or the Lamb's Book of Life is all throughout the Old Testament, New Testament. There's a, uh, a point of... Discussion here about before the foundation of the world. So let's just take a brief moment to talk about God's sovereignty. Um, even in the church today, there's some, there's some discussion about God's sovereignty. You can't deny that he ascribes sovereignty to himself in the Bible. The question is, how does that sovereignty play out? And so you, you have this spectrum, is the way I like to describe it, of different places to land. One, on, one far end would be what we call Calvinism, which is a complete sovereignty of God over every moment, molecule, and right in it. So God has already planned everything out and everything unfolds. In the far other end of the scale, you have more of an Arminian belief. And the far end of that scale, you get to the prosperity gospel, which basically makes man sovereign over God. You name it, you claim it. God is, is obligated to do whatever you want him to do if you have enough faith. You, can, you see the different ends of that spectrum, right? And so what's interesting, I think the New Testament undisputably proclaims that God is sovereign. The question is, how, how does it play out? And there is some discussion left to be had. Did God predestine me to be saved and I didn't have a choice? Or did God just foreknow that I was going to choose Jesus and so that's, that's his sovereignty over me? Or he, he leave the cards completely on the table for me to, to, to play out however I, I wanted. That's the discussion here. And, and so in this particular passage, though, the fa- before the foundation of the world is ascribed grammatically in the original language towards the lamb who was slain. Later on in Revelation, it gets ascribed to the book. See how it leaves it, it leaves some room to have that discussion. But what's the point? God is sovereign. 
We can dispute all day long on how that sovereignty plays out. I had a good friend who came up to me one time, we were talking about this, and he said, if I stomp on your toe right now, are you saying that God predestined me to stomp on your toe, right? And I said, well, I don't know, but God has predestined me to forgive you, so go for it, right? That age-old debate, but the point is not whether God has wound the universe up according to a very detailed, specific plan, and everybody plays it out according to his plan, or if there's room and there's freedom, the point is God's saying, here's what you need to hear. I'm sovereign over this thing. I'm sovereign over the universe. There'll be a period of time where it looks like I'm not. I'm telling you about it in advance so that while it's happening, you'll know. I'm telling you all this stuff about the lawless one. He's gonna pretend to be me. He's gonna pretend to be Jesus. He's gonna even have some kind of mortal wound, right? He's gonna hijack my very identity. You'll know it. And what I want you to know is this, his time is limited. How can we know that, God? Because God says, I'm sovereign. Who is comparable to me? I'm sovereign over the lawless one. Now, these next two statements in your notes, let's fill them out together. The saints of God find their identity, their joy, and their security in the things of heaven. Right? They dwell in heaven. Even here on earth, they dwell in heaven. If you're a Christian here today, even here on earth, your dwelling should be heaven. Your eyes should be fixed on Christ, not the things of this earth. Right? You shouldn't find your security and how much money you have or your 401k or the house you have or the neighborhood or right? how well-behaved your kids are. Our identity is not found in those things. Our identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. If you are a follower of God, you're a saint, and your identity, your joy, you don't find joy in those things, your security in the things of heaven. What we see here, though, those who dwell on earth, they find their identity, joy, and security in the things of earth. The followers of Satan find their identity, their joy, and security in the things of earth. While there is a certain part of the movement of the Antichrist that should be obvious, if you read and believe the Bible, there will be a great deal of deception. You'll be lured into finding joy and security and identity in the things that are here on earth. Things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Things that rust. Things that moths destroy. Right? Things that can't stand up to the ocean and say, thus far you may come and you shall stop right here. Right? Doubt me, just go build a structure down on the coast and wait for a hurricane, right? Finding security in things here on earth. Now, verse 9 and 10. So the lawless one has been described to us. His followers have been identified. His strategy has been identified. What's beautiful here is God, through John, writing this down, he goes back to an invitation that, 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 that was the, um, the ending of each of the seven letters to the churches. If you were here for that part of the sermon series, each letter was ended with, he who has an ear, let him hear. Being what? An invitation, being extended by God. Like if, you, if you're hearing this today, pay attention. Look at what he says. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to ta- captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So let's talk for a minute about if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now that phrase actually comes from the Old Testament. And it's a foreshadowing of the gospel. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 6 um, is a reference to, uh, is one of the references where it shows up in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, uh, two summers ago, 
um, we were walking through the, 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 uh, the book of Isaiah as a church, and Jeff Sanders uh, preached a message on this very passage. He who has an ear, let him hear. That's a foreshadowing of the gospel. Why? Because salvation will come by hearing and believing, not by doing a bunch of good works. So here's Isaiah 6. This is Old Testament, verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people. So he's telling Isaiah, here's your message. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. That was their problem. They were hearing God, they were seeing, but they weren't getting it. Verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel. See with your eyes, hear with your ears, believe in your heart and turn and be healed. That's the gospel. This is what Paul says in Romans 10, right? This is just a few verses from Romans 10. Starting in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So how do we get there? How do we get from unbelief to belief? Paul, writing Romans, says this. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes on to ask these questions. Well, how can they call on one, one in whom they have not heard? And how are they going to hear unless somebody proclaims? And he wraps this section of scripture up by saying, what faith comes from hearing and hearing the words of Christ. So all the way back, the prophet Isaiah is saying, the gospel message will be a message of hearing and believing, hearing and understanding. Paul is saying, you're saved. By hearing and believing, right? Hearing and believing. That can't happen unless you hear. Now, in the book of Revelation, we've got, again, this beautiful invitation. He who has an ears, let him hear. I feel a deep sense of angst and desperation in this. God's saying to you and I today, like, if you have ears, please, please listen. He who has an ear, let him hear. There's a call to salvation here. A beautiful invitation of salvation for you. I don't know what potentially your misunderstanding of the gospel may be. I grew up with a significant misunderstanding. Even after I became a Christian, the gospel for me was very works-based. So when I was doing good, coming to church a lot, giving money, doing the things I should be doing, I really walked around with a sense of God's happy with me. But guess what happened as soon as I began to slip off of that church attendance or quit being so faithful or re-engaged in a previous sin, all of a sudden I felt like God was unhappy with me. That's works-based. That's not faith-based. The gospel says what? God loves you, and you can't make him love you more, nor can you make him love you less. That's not the deciding factor of, of whether or not you get into heaven. The deciding factor is what you do with Jesus when you hear the gospel. Do you believe? That's the invitation but I don't, have, I don't have the right kind of clothes to come to your church. Seriously? You've never, obviously never visited Solid Rock. I mean, we got an elder who wears shorts 50 out of 52 Sundays. His wife wins two Sundays out of the year. Like, it's not about the clothes you wear. Oh, but if I come in and people know what I've done, the walls will fall in. Really? I'd like to introduce you to some people when you get here, and y'all swap stories, right, and see who's got the who's who's rap list. Like, 
The saints aren't identified by their perfect morality, this, right? This perfect trajectory from birth and destined to be saints. We're saints because Jesus made us saints. He took those of us who were dull of hearing, slow to believe, hard hearts, and what did he do? Through his love, he, he opened us up to see something. He opened us up to hear something. And when we heard it, we believed it. And that saves us. That saves us. Now, the second part of this is a call for Christians to persevere by faith. Here is the call for endurance. Why do we have to be called to endurance? Because there's going to be a time of rebellion and persecution. Now, is it happening right here on the earth? I wouldn't say wholesale it is. It's happening in pockets, though. Significant persecution. More Christians numerically on the face of the earth being persecuted today than in, in Jesus' time or the whole first century. Right? But you and I, for the most part, are walking in a sense of protection and freedom from that. It hasn't completely taken over the earth. There's going to be a period of time of suffering and rebellion. And Jesus is saying to us, when that happens, hold tight. I gave you the information before it happened, so you would know I'm sovereign. Hold tight. Persevere in what? Persevere in faith. Here's the call for endurance and faith of the saints. The last note in your notes this morning, the saints of God face trials and persecution with faith rooted in God's sovereignty. When you face a trial, right, your faith says to you, God's got this. I don't know how. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't look like it. It looks like I'm being conquered right now. But faith ignites a truth in your heart that says what? God has got this. He's sovereign. He's got it. That's your trials you'll face this week. That's the trials of the church, the saints of God, as the lawless one is revealed. God is saying to Christians, to you, to his followers, keep your eyes on me. Your dwelling isn't here on earth. Don't get distracted when this earth begins to fall apart and you begin to see destruction take over and lawlessness take over. Don't be distracted by that. Keep your eyes on me. Don't love your life here on earth, right? Not unto death. Don't say that what I'm living here right now on earth is more important than anything that I will get in eternity. God's people have their eyes fixed on eternity, regardless of what happens here on earth. I want to pray for us now and invite um, Jason to come back up and prepare our hearts to take communion. I don't know where you are this morning. We're going to take communion in just a minute, and it's really important, I believe, that we don't take communion flippantly, or at a place of disconnect with God. So I'm gonna give you a chance, if you haven't yet today, to connect with the Father. If it's the first time for you just to say, God, I don't know fully what it means yet, but I trust in you. By faith, I believe, please save me. That's you, you, you become a Christian today. And others of us, maybe you came in this morning distracted or heavy burdened, and so you just need a moment to reconnect with the Father and lay those burdens down. I'm gonna pray for us now that we would do that. And then in just a minute, we'll take communion together. So let's Let's respond by praying at this time. I'm just gonna pray over you and then give you time to pray yourself. God, we are so thankful for the power of your word, how it reminds us, God, that you are incomparable. There is no God like you. No, no God who has power like you, majesty like you, glory like you. Thank you for reminding us of your incomparable attributes this morning. 
And in the same way, God, that you show us that you will be sovereign over the Antichrist, God, would you be sovereign over the despair, the struggles of our life today? Could we trust you as much today as you're calling to trust in you when the persecution comes? God, any person here who doesn't know you, would this be a time of salvation and connecting with you for the first time, coming by faith and saying, I believe, 